reading the word. Um, good morning, Redeemer. Welcome. Um, if you don't know me yet, my name is Terry Coons, and I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. It's my joy to share some thoughts on the Word of God to, with you all this morning. And as we begin this morning, I need to make a confession of sorts. Um, when I was a younger man, I thought that when I reached my current age, I'd have it all figured out, you know, mature that I would be smarter, wiser, and more insightful than I was then, that I would have become immune to temptation and sin, and that I'd be running towards the finish line, full bore, eyes on the goal with joy and confidence. Well, there's some days where that might approach truth, but um, there are other days where I'm reminded of how short of the goal I still am. And in the preparation for this message uh, this morning, God has uh, been using that as one of those occasions where I'm uh, reminded of my spiritual juvenile delinquency. And we're continuing our message series on the book of Isaiah, Invincible Joy, and And yes, we're getting towards the end of it, chapter 58 today. There's another, in another three or four years, we'll be done with Isaiah. Just hang in there, and then we might start it all over again, I don't know. But, um, yeah, the subject for today is fasting. You all know what fasting is, you all do it so well, I'm sure, just like me. You know, that's where you forego something in favor of something else. Essentially, that's it. You forego something that's important to you in order to spend that time and that energy, those resources with something else that's maybe more needed, more wantful. And uh, this message is on the fast that the Lord desires, the fast that He accepts. And I am such an amateur at fasting. There's a confession right there. I suck at fasting. I'm terrible. I mean, so I'm just going to speak my, from my heart. I'm going to try to be open and transparent and explore this subject with you. I'm not preaching from a position of strength here. Yeah, maybe it's because I see it uh, that is fasting is something that I have to do that I don't like to do. I mean, and that's skip a meal. I mean, okay, come on now. Look, does it look like I've skipped many meals? No. You know, it doesn't. I don't go hungry often. I've often told people that I'm cursed. I'm cursed because there's nothing about eating I don't like. I like the taste. I like the smell. I like the looks of, well, most foods. I love the table experience of setting down a gathering with friends, family, and strangers around the table and sharing my life over a tasty morsel or two. I have great appetite for all that. I'd like to think that that's all good, right? I mean, that's the way God made me. He put, he's put in me, uh, he's put me in some place in creation where food is in abundance. It's not like I'm in India or some of the other parts of the world where food is at a premium. I mean, he put me here, he wants me to eat, right? 
So I should be able to celebrate that abundance and my appetites because they're gifts from God. After all, if I sanctify the cheesecake with a table prayer, that removes all calories, right? Isn't that the way it works? But isn't it interesting how sin can begin with a little bit of truth before descending into darkness? So I don't like to do fasting. Fasting is associated with food, of course. You know, give up a meal for, you know, a meal, a day, a week, extended period. The Bible tells us Jesus fasted for 40 days, 40 nights. Wow, couldn't do that. But I suspect that there's some deeper issues at work. Maybe if I understood the reason for a fast a little better, I'd be able to control my appetite better. I'd be able to, you know, relish the experience. I'm not the kind of guy, though, that you can just tell me to do something and I do it. I, uh, I'm obsessed with reasons. Tell me the why. Why do you want me to do this? Help me to understand that before the what. If I understand the end in mind of something, I'm more likely to buy in, right? Maybe you're like that too. So what's the Lord's end in mind for fasting? The first four verses of our passage this morning reveals that. Isaiah, uh, the Lord through Isaiah says, Shout it out aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a triumph. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendant, descendants of Jacob their sins. There's trouble. And there's trouble right here in River City. And it starts with the letter R. It's rebellion. But the descendants of Jacob are blind to it. They don't, they don't see themselves as rebelling. They see themselves as you know, adhering to the, the commandments of God. And that's why the Lord is saying, raise your voice, Isaiah. Get these people to understand. You got questions, here's my answers. Verse 2, for day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does right and have, has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for decisions. They seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted they say, and you have not seen it. Why have we humbled ourselves, and you have not noticed? Yet in the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. The Hebrews complain they've checked all the boxes. They're doing what God asked them to do, told them to do. They're humbling themselves. They are um, oftentimes dressing and Sackcloth, throwing dust on them to show their, show their religious religiosity. They're putting on a good show. But it seems apparent here that uh, apart from that experience, their lives fall short of how God would have them to live and certainly how God would have them to respond to Him. You know, in the previous messages in this series, that conditions were not good in Jerusalem during Isaiah's day. There's all sorts of trouble, all sorts of suffering, all sorts of fear. And the descendants of Jacob had been checking that fasting box to try to induce God to help them out. 
But part of the problem was they had too many boxes. You know, there's only one fast um, ordained by God found in the Bible. One fast. Anybody know where it's at? Day of Atonement. This was a day of gravity and gladness. On this day, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the entire nation of Israel. It was a, a solemn occasion, and it was dangerous for the high priest. I mean, they tied a rope around his waist when he entered into the Holy of Holies, hoping that they wouldn't have to drag out a corpse because of the fury of God and him not being worthy. In Leviticus 16, we find that the command, uh, that we find the command for the observance of the Day of Atonement, where God told Israel, you are to afflict your souls, which is an idiomatic phrase applied to fasting. Humble yourself. Humiliate yourself. Face up to your sins. Weigh the gravity of the, uh, the sin. Weigh the consequences of your sin. Turn to the Lord and receive atonement. So there's a time of gladness. Sin is uh, recognized and it's dealt with. That's the only place a fast is ordained or commanded by God to be found in the Bible. The Day of Atonement became so well known for fasting by by the time of the New Testament, the Day of Atonement was simply known as the fast. And if you could, if you would do that, it was good. But I said a moment ago, Israel had too many boxes to check by the time of this writing. You see, when the Lord led Israel out of captivity in Egypt through the promised land, and in, or through the wilderness to the promised land, which, by the way, was the same time that he instituted the Day of Atonement, He warned Israel not to fall into the habits and practices of the nations around them. They were fleeing from the practices and habits of of Egypt. There were nations in Israel or in the promised land that they were displaced. There's nations all around and they all had their own practices. And one of the practices that they had was fasting. All the nations fasted. Fasting wasn't unique to the Hebrews. All the nations fasted, but their intent was not to humble themselves and recognize their sin and turn away from it and turn to their deity for atonement, but an attempt to manipulate their gods to do something for them. The practice was transactional in the nations. We'll do this, so you do that. But the Hebrews looked at the people around them. They observed their multitude of fasts and among other detestable habits, they adopted them. They introduced a great number of fasts into Israel's religious life. They, um, you know, added, for example, uh, a fast to commemorate the times of national calamity. They they added a fast uh, in the fifth month to commemorate the burning of Solomon's temple. By Nebuchadnezzar, they um, also went in the seventh month to commemorate the murder of the 
Governor Gedaliah, all sorts of fasts. They probably thought, well, boy, we'll sure impress God. You know, instead of one fast, we're going to double down. We're going to triple down. We're going to square this. It's our get-out-of-jail card. And by the time of Jesus, some people fasted quite often. The Pharisees, Pharisees fasted twice a week. Their significance, or the significance of uh, fast, the fast, was lost. The intent was diluted. They became check-the-box attempts to capture God's favor. It's something they could do and not change the way they behaved. Okay, we're going to fast, check the box, God responds. You know, we, we check the box all the time, don't we? Anytime we do something because it's expected, because we have to, because it's something we've always done, because it's the easiest way, that's checking the box. It's kind of a, a mindless activity that we can do. Greatest example ever. I'm going to throw, I'm going to kind of throw a couple of my kids under the bus, but I'm not going to say who the, which ones it is, but. They were arguing once, and it was a severe, intense argument. It was tears dripping, snot dripping from the nose, just about ready to come to blows when I stepped in and I said, I don't know who or what started this, but it ends now. There's enough sin to go around for both of you. And then in my wisdom, I said, apologize to each other and then forgive each other. <laughs> right now. And you know how it ended, right? <laughs> they apologized. Sorry. They forgave each other. I forgive you. With their mouths. But their hearts were far from being engaged. It kind of looked like verse 4 here. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking with each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today. And expect your voice to be heard on high. Oppressing their workers. Quarreling and strife. Can God be in that? There's no fruit in it. But the Hebrews didn't get it. Their hearts were wicked before the fast. They were wicked during the fast. And they were wicked. The wickedness was manifested after the fast. Because they didn't get it. Yeah, I just threw my kids under the bus, but checking the box is so me. I do it all the time. I can be so pious. I can look so devout. I can do such good works. But just like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that Jesus described as whitewashed tombs, that's me. I can do all the right things. I can put on all the right airs. I can dress up real nice and look like a preacher, a godly man before you, but I can be so far from the Lord, so dry and empty when I'm doing all that. And I suspect that perhaps there may be others like me in this room. 
So what's the solution? Reading on, verse 5. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble, humble themselves? Is it only for bowling or bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? And then he goes on, he says, Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, Here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. See, the Lord raises the bar in fasting. It's no longer a matter of food. Food is just a conveyance. He's looking at behavior here. But I want to caution us not to look at this as just another to-do list. Because we could. We could look at that and, and see another set of checkboxes. We could very, very easily stand up for the poor and the oppressed. Check. We could very easily advocate for social justice. Check the box. We could very easily be generous and share with the less fortunate. Take the family in. How much did you guys bet on this? <laughs> Check the box. Ho, ho, excuse me. How's the homeless? Check the box. Clothe the, the naked. Check the box. We're, backing to we're back to checking the boxes again. We're missing the point again. Take a closer look at the things that the Lord is asking us to do, including the Day of Atonement. Repent. Turn to the Lord for your salvation. Think of others more highly than yourselves. Love sacrificially. There's more that I could pull out of there. But the one thing that they have all in common, and here's the point, I think it's the point, the Lord is asking His people to do what is impossible for them to do by themselves. You see, without the wooing of the Holy Spirit, I can't even want to repent, much less repent. I can't turn to the Lord unless the Holy Spirit says, over here, can't do it. It's not in me. The root of sin is that we're all born into selfishness. 
going our own way, not God's. Loving sacrificially, living agape love, love that gives without any expectation of return is countercultural. And it's an antithesis to our human nature. Our selfish souls demand a repayment. We can't do it. We can't love sacrificially. It's not going to happen for people in a transactional world. And all this goes along with other commands that we find in the Bible, like forgive from the heart. You ever struggled over that one? Someone offends you, and you know, the Bible says, got to forgive. I know I should forgive because Jesus forgave me, and just as I am forgiven, I need to forgive. But God raises the bar, and he says, you need to forgive from the heart. And when the offense is deep and painful, it wounds the heart. And if there's not an open sore, there's a scar that makes forgiving from the heart impossible. Other commands like husbands love your wives like Christ loved the church. Are you willing to die for your spouse? And by die, I don't mean jump in front of a bus or something like that for her. I mean surrendering all your preferences and rights as an individual. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Why should I submit to that clown? I'm a free moral agent. I can do whatever I want. My body is my own. God gave me a brain, and he invested gifts and talents in me that I can pursue. Why should I submit? Children, obey your parents in everything. I won't even go there. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Been guilty. The list goes on and on. And you can finish the list at your leisure because maybe you've got some examples that are more fitting for you. But it's impossible to to obey any of these by ourselves on our own strength. Can't do it. That's why he sent his spirit to convict us, to lead us, to live not with us, but in us, to empower us to do that which is impossible for us. Verse 11, the Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land. And he will strengthen your frame. He will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild their ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. And you will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets and dwellings. Let that sink in a moment. I'll read it again. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden like a spring whose waters never fail. 
your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called restorer. You will be called repairers of broken walls and restorer of streets with dwellings. Didn't that sound good? Didn't that sound good? Do you want any of that? I do. Fasting like prayer isn't about what you get when you pray or what you get when you fast. It's about who you get. It's about who you get. We're never going to manipulate God to do something that he doesn't already intend on doing. God's in heaven. He does what he pleases. He's got a plan. He's marching forward. He's inviting you to be part of it. And he's inviting you to be intimate with him. Our righteousness is like filthy rags to the Holy One of Israel. You know, we dress ourselves up. I look pretty good this morning, I think. My wife said I did anyway. But before God, it's just a filthy rag because he's not seeing my clothes, he's seeing my heart. Now, thankfully, he sees the blood of Christ all over me. And that mitigates that. But by myself, I'm a hot mess. And so are you. The best that we can do when we try to check the boxes is to tragically, and I mean it's a tragedy, to tragically fall short of the mark. What is true fasting? Or what is true about fasting is also true about keeping the Sabbath. And here in the last uh, couple of verses of Isaiah 58, he makes that connection. Jesus said that he did not come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill the law. We call Jesus the living word because the written word is all about him from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelations. It's about Jesus. Think about that for a minute. If Jesus fulfilled the law, then he is the law. If the Sabbath and fasting is prescribed by the law, then Jesus is the Sabbath, and he is the fast. When we fast, we are asking the living God to sovereignly do what we cannot do. We're entering into a mystical, and I, I mean, I can't explain it, but somehow we are in, well, we talk about being in Christ. I mean, literally, there's a mystical union that occurs. When we fast, we're asking the living God to sovereignly do what we cannot do. When we keep the Sabbath, we're entering a Sabbath rest that is otherworldly, that is holy, that is mystical, that's life-giving. How do you keep the Sabbath? Are Sundays a time of otherworldly, holy, mystical, life-giving rest? I'm not trying to meddle here. I'm just wanting you to think a minute. I know life is messy. You know, my life is messier than probably most. And our lives are full of stuff. And it's hard. It really is hard to navigate this world. Hard to give our time and our attention to the Lord because there's so many other voices calling our names. I talk about squirrels and shiny objects. So many things can competing for our attention and our allegiance, our love. 
and our time. But that's the point, isn't it? God knows it's hard. That's why he sent Jesus. That's why when Jesus returned to the Father, he sent the Holy Spirit. That's why he says, Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let me do for you what you can't do for yourself. Come to me. Let me carry you. Let me give you what you need. Let me fulfill the desires of your heart. Fasting is not about food. And the Sabbath is not about a day of the week. It's about intimacy. So what's keeping you from enjoying intimacy with the Lord? It literally could be anything. The Apostle Paul in Romans uh, 14.23 makes the point that anything that does not come from faith or anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. Wow. That opens up the field a lot, doesn't it? And anything that we can do can be sin. And even when it's not sin, if we're not careful, it can be white noise that interferes with our intimacy with the Lord. It blocks out our ability to to hear Him, to respond to Him, to enjoy Him. So what is it that interferes with your intimacy with the Lord? For me, it's this little human appendage right here. Yeah. My cell phone. It takes up way too much of my time and my attention. And instead of making me wiser, smarter, happier, and healthier, it's doing just the opposite. It serves as my alarm in the morning, my calendar, my, uh, my workout tracker, as well as being a communication device. But that's not the worst. The worst is the connection it gives me to the trouble, to the insanity, to the stupidity, to the heartlessness, to the chaos, to the tragedy, to the drivel of this world through my news feed and social media. It fills my mind with thoughts and emotions that aren't necessarily helpful. And it's so hard to leave it alone. To leave it behind, to do without. It has become literally an appendage to my body. And again, I would guess that I'm not the only one in this room with a similar issue. That's my stumbling block. What's yours? What's your need this morning? Where's your brokenness? Where's your heartache? Where's your sin? What's the besetting sin that you know is wrong, that you just can't seem to break, to get rid of? Where do you need God to show up and deliver you like the Israelites needed God to show up and deliver them? (sighs) Whatever it is, 
I just want to invite you this morning. Ask the Lord to do what you can't do. I want to invite the worship team to come back up. But I also want you to ask the Lord to give you the power to lay down whatever it is, to destroy its power, to distract you, to take you to his holy mountain and give you joy, as Donovan shared last week. Don't look for a quick solution. It's not like, um, you know, if you do this, if you build this, they will come. Eventually, it may take a while. Of pressing into the Lord. Chinese proverb, journey of a thousand miles starts with one step. Don't give up. Press in. The enemy's going to try to discourage you from spending time. He's going to throw distractions in your way. Fight. Fight for joy. Don't quit. Because if you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day. If you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, look what happens. Then you will find joy in the Lord, invincible joy. We're people of invincible joy. Should be, trying to be, want to be. And I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land. You'll be secure on every side. And to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob as dearly loved and treasured children of the living God. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Would you pray with me? Father, much of what we want to do, should do in this world is impossible for us because we are finite, frail broken people and we need you we need you we need to know you. We need to trust you. We need to press into you. We need to hear your voice. We need to spend time with you, Father. Don't, don't let us, don't let us um, take the easy way and live checkbox, checkbox lives, Lord. Meet us in our need, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.